Thank you, Myers. Appreciate that so very much. If you'll grab your Bibles, Romans chapter 12, you'll join me there. Romans chapter number 12 as we continue our study. And the next couple of weeks, bringing this chapter to a close and moving onward in Romans. Just a few chapters left. But Romans chapter 12, you join me there. Again, I just remind you as uh, we get into the message this evening, kind of as a precursor maybe, or just a reminder, you know, one of the, one of the ways we draw closer to God is through the study of His Word. And uh, I like to think of it this way. If you have a, a, a son, maybe... Uh, Let's just say you owned your own business, and uh, you started it from the ground up, and you owned it, and, and it may be your heart's desire as a father to see him, or your son, go into that same uh, business, whatever the case may be. And may I tell you, the, the father's heart, our father in heaven, his heart delights in you and I taking on his character. But the, whoa, we lost, there we go. Are we losing power there? We'll see. All right, we'll pretend nothing's happening, okay? As we get into Romans chapter 12, and uh, last week, we, real quick, we looked at uh, verse number 14, a great challenge, wasn't it? Bless them which persecute. You're still in this passage through verse 16 about looking at what seeing, uh, there we go again, in and out, um, seeing about uh, dealing with fellow believers and showing grace one to another as part of the church, the family of God, and that really continues. And I'd encourage you, you know, preaching and teaching is good. It's God's uh, designation means of getting out to the truth, distributing his word today. We get that. However, if the teaching, the preaching, and even proclaiming of the truth, like all of us as believers do, if that falls on deaf ears, if it falls on hardened hearts or dull minds, then the effect is minimal. All teaching and preaching and proclaiming of the truth uh, has as its goal, don't miss this, has as its goal the changing of character. Uh, we would describe it really as the eventual goal, but it's the idea we're changing the character of a person. Not just changing them for a moment, but their very character, who they are, how they respond, how they react, how you, you want to describe it. You see, you change a person's character, and that, therefore, guess what? You change their conduct. This passage is all about the conduct of the Christian. And so if we can change character, then we can change conduct. But how do you change character? Well, you have to speak and reach the heart. That's where it starts. In fact, uh, we might describe it as this. Uh, these verses we're studying are about our conduct. Outward actions that are a product of character change, and character change starts with a heart change. That's what all the prior chapters of Romans is dealing with, and uh, even verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 12 is saying, okay, let's get the heart right, and as we get the heart right with God, then we can speaking the truth into one's life so that we see the character change. And then as the character has changed, it will produce this conduct. And so Paul is really working at that. Change the heart through exposure to the truth and one personally embracing the truth, then that truth can move on to change the character of a person. And eventually that truth will spill out on the outside. We'll see a change in conduct. And when you cultivate conduct that way, it sticks. See, I, if, I'm, if my point to this intro is anything, it's this. If you try to just change someone's conduct on the outside without changing the heart and the character, it won't last. 
You can convince somebody they need to be a Christian, they need to do the right thing, but they don't change their heart, they don't change their character, they're never going to be able to live up to Romans chapter 12. It's not going to happen. So when Paul speaks in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, as we present our bodies a living sacrifice, as our minds are renewed and transformed, the idea is from the inside out, we are transformed in such a way, it starts with the heart, our character has changed. No longer do we have the characteristics of the old man, the old nature. Now I have a new character, patterned after Jesus Christ. And then it becomes uh, available or possible for me to do these things. Boy, last week's verse is a tough one. Bless them which persecute you. And boy, it gets even deeper in some ways. It gets even harder. And we're not going to be able to do that consistently in our conduct unless our heart has changed. And it changes our character. And then that then in turn produces conduct. That's one of the keys to parenting. Uh, you're not just trying to get them to conform on the outside and fall in line. No, you want to reach the heart, affect the heart, and then build character within them so that when you and I leave the room as parents, it doesn't all fall apart. That it's still there, that it's present. The character produces conduct, consistent conduct. And really, I, uh, that's, that's what Paul is speaking to here. It, 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 that kind of character can do the hard things. That kind of character is, can bless those who persecute us. It can treat our enemies with kindness, as we'll see in verse 20 next week. It can also be the, uh, the kind of character that has a lack of retaliation. The verses we'll study again next week, too. That's the kind of character we're striving to produce in our own lives and, and to stir up in one another, if we may put it that way. You see, when the opposition, when your enemy or someone's against you, the opposition and misunderstanding we face uh, is so unreasonable, it's only going to be conduct that flows from Christ-like character that will last. So as that just gets worse and worse, the misunderstanding and, and uh, uh, people treating the persecution gets greater, the question is, do you have Christ-like conduct or Christ-like character that has produced your conduct? Because if you do, then you're going to be able to withstand it. I like what he says at the end of the chapter. He says, don't be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. And he's building this. You can do this. It's a, it's a Pauline pep talk, if we might put it that way. Get this character in your life, let it produce the conduct, and then you're going to be able to go through these things. You see, when our motives are misrepresented or misinterpreted, when our actions are misjudged, when Satan himself sometimes energizes others to do his ill will toward us without reason, boy, it's going to take great faith. It's going to take great humility and a great commitment that is only found in Christ-like character erupting from the truth of God's word in one's heart that produces a lasting Christian conduct in the face of such onslaught. You'll be able to withstand those things. And I love this because you know what Paul's doing? He's equipping us. He's edifying us. He's building us up so that, hey, it doesn't matter what Satan throws. It doesn't matter how long the arrow and his attack, how, how the duration of the attack and where it comes from. It does not matter. I'm going to have Christ-like character that produces a conduct that can handle it. You say, wow, that's a, that's, that's, that's a lot to ask. Well, it takes a great manager or it takes a great foreman, doesn't it? And praise the Lord, we have one. He's the Holy Spirit. And he indwells you and he indwells me. And he is the one, he, think of all that he does. He woos and he draws, he persuades, he convicts, he challenges, he exhorts, he edifies, he leads, he illuminates with the truth. And he helps us in so many ways uh, with the goal in mind that we yield to him and his hand being at work in our lives producing what? The portrait of Christ. And what is that portrait? Character. 
Character that produces a Christ-like conduct. And that's what we're talking about. That's what Paul's striving to, again, stir up in each one of us. Let's look at the next thing that he adds. So let me just encourage you by that. All right, hey, I want this Christ-like character from a right heart that produces the right conduct as described here. Now notice what he adds to it. He adds another thing. Look at verse 15. He says this, Rejoice with them that do rejoice, and weep with them that do weep. Okay, real quick, let's hit these right off the bat. We'll throw them both at you at the beginning. Number two is this, the call to empathize with my brothers and sister. The call to empathize with my brothers and sister. The definition understand and share the feelings of others. Okay, to understand and share the feelings of others. That's the terminology of empathize, and certainly that's what he's getting to in this whole verse, and especially with the rejoice with those that rejoice. Okay, so let's quickly add the second one from the same verse. Number three, he says this, it's a call to sympathize, right? It's a call to sympathize with my brothers and sisters. The word sympathy, from which we obviously get the word sympathize, is defined as the perception, understanding, and reaction to the distress and need or need of others or another. Okay, good definitions, and we're going to kind of use this throughout the message this evening, the sermon, and kind of refer back to it. So, but here's the call. We are called to empathize and sympathize with one with another, okay? And uh, that understanding, that sharing the feelings, the eye perception of them being hurt, a reaction that's appropriate. You know, is this. You might possibly, likely even, you have a good friend, a dear friend, or maybe a close family member that you would say, oh, you know, Pastor Henry, this person in my life, they do that. I, they will rejoice with me when I rejoice. They will weep with me when I weep. And, and that's probably so. You know, when you prosper, when something goes your way, you know, you can share it with them. Like, it can be as simple as finding a good deal at, at the store, right? And you know, if I share with them, they'll be like, oh, that's awesome. You got such a great deal. Well, somebody else will be like, so what? What? <laughs> that's a big deal for why? Okay, happy for you. Yeah. But this person, man, they'll, they'll get excited because you're excited. And it may be uh, insignificant. It could be as big as getting a promotion or something like that. And But you know, you can call them up and they will rejoice. They'll be as ecstatic and excited and celebratory in their attitude and spirit as you are. And yet the reverse is true too. Sorrow and hits, hits hard at home. Pick up the phone and you can, or see them face to face. And the fact is this, you know just in sharing your heart that very soon their tears will be mingled with your tears. That they'll come alongside and they're going to pick up your burden. And they're going to throw it on their own backs. And, and they're going to be right there through thick and thin walking through the valley with you. And all it takes is a phone call. All it takes is mentioning something to them. And boy, that burden, they're, they're going to be, they're going to be lifting it with you. Wouldn't it be great? if every Christian obeyed these commands like that? We did it for everybody? And that's really what Paul's getting at because we all kind of know what that is because we might have some person in our life and, uh, that we do that with. But the struggle is here, and this is what Paul presents. The struggle with this command is, as we have seen with many others, <laughs> the struggle to do this goes contrary where the struggle comes from our old human nature, which is contrary to us. See, it is not natural for us to always rejoice with those that rejoice. To we See the reaction. See the reaction. 
I'm sure they'll all gather around them. You are so blessed. Let's rejoice together for your lollipop. Ain't no way. Ain't gonna happen. Why? Because sinful nature does not cause us immediately. Ha ha, I'm gonna rejoice with them. Boy, they're so blessed. Boy, this is just wonderful. Praise the Lord. They got a sucker and I didn't. They got a, uh uh-uh. Ain't happening. It's not natural. That's not our old nature, our natural flesh response um, to that happening. What is our natural? Well, the fact is this. When we see someone else happy, successful, prospered, immediately in our old flesh, remember those thoughts we talked about last week? How you're out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh, how these horrible thoughts come out of the heart, murder and envying and everything. Envying come out of the heart. We read Matthew. What happens? Someone else has prospered. Guess what comes to, starts to build up in me? Jealousy. Natural to rejoice with them, the old flesh. And boy, we allow it to express itself. In other words, we don't fight the struggle. Nope, that's not my character. I'm not letting that express itself and, uh, express itself and come out. What if we don't do that and we do allow it to express itself? Have you ever noticed how it comes out in our words and our action? Very much our conduct and our communication critical. It also, we attempt to dampen the spirit. You know what happened? That candy's nasty anyway. That's my favorite. I don't. It's, I, all of a sudden, boy, that's jealousy coming to the top. We know what it is. The fact of the matter, it can come out in us too, very easily. I mean, you think about it. We dampen the other person. We even offer discouragement. Let's just do this. I'll use an illustration through the rest of the service, and I'll pick on different people. I'll, I'll pick on Brother Ernie tonight, and uh, he may be mad at me after the end of the service. But let's say uh, Brother Ernie, this week, he, he wins a truck, brand new truck. In fact, we'll even say it's a 2021, the first edition coming out and rolling off and whatever that does. And in the fall, right? And he, but he's going to win one, right? And he, I mean, it's clear and free. He's won one. And, and boy, he drives in the driver and goes, hey, look at my truck. I just got it. I just want it. You know, some of us, our flesh will be looking at that. And, and we might say something like this. Well, it's probably a lemon. That's why they're giving it away. Then some of you look at the thing and the brand, you say, well, who would want a Ford anyway? <laughs> and all of a sudden, we just start ripping on it. We'll tear it down. And, well, that's an ugly color. I, it better be free. And, and boy, we, we say comments and we get critical. That, and where's that coming from? I'll tell you where it's coming from. It's coming from the old flesh. That's not say it, but how many times have you thought it? How many times have you entertained the thought? Now, I get it. There's a struggle there. I mean, I could use a new truck. I could use that. Boy, that'd be nice. Just like those kids in that, that class. I mean, <laughs> you think about it. What, what would they say? Well, that's not fair. Where's mine? Why don't I get one? I was doing better than they were. I was beha- behaving. And sometimes you and I say the same things to God. Someone else is blessed, and we're supposed to rejoice with them. We're like, God, that's not fair. God, where's mine? (laughs) 
God, what, what, I, I was a better Christian than they were. Isn't it funny how sometimes we can go older, but some things don't change? We can thank those things. We may not say them out loud. We may not express them, but we entertain their thoughts. And boy, that envy and jealousy is given place in our lives. We wrestle with the thoughts of our old heart we, and our nature, and then we give them place. In other words, we don't, well, how does the Bible put it? Man, such a great verse. And I, the older I get, the more I realize how crucial it is for us to obey this. It says, bringing. Where things nature, though it's been defeated at the cross, and one day it'll be forever kicked to the curb, it's still there clawing, trying to claw its way back in our lives. Clawing to get back on the throne and come to, to, to rule and to reign in our lives. And boy, in our minds, we've got to kick that old flesh down. We go, no, I'm going to be Christ-like. I'm going to follow the truth of God's word and, and allow that to guide and direct me. But boy, when we don't, we give place to it. We allow envy and jealousy and other things. You know, it is sad to say that there are some people, Christians included, who when you are in sorrow or difficulty, they actually show somehow that they are gratified. They take joy in another's weeping with those who weep. That, boy, that old... of others. If I am so selfish, if I am so self-focused, and it's all about me, my life, and I get so consumed and caught up in that that I'm not seeing the needs and the feelings of others, then I can't be obedient to it. We have to be in the practice of perceiving what is going on in others' lives. You must have your eyes and heart open to what others are experiencing. In other words, don't be so self-absorbed that you miss what other people are experiencing. Their emotions, their feelings, the, the challenges of life they're going through, even the rejoicing of life. And Well, that's good for you, but I've got too much going on in my life to, to, to get too excited about that. No, Paul says get excited with them. Get excited. They love at its best. It's turning the focus from ourselves onto others completely. And you say, well, how does that start? How do I do that? You know how it starts? It starts at church getting beyond, hi, how you doing, but I don't really listen to the answer. It means saying, hi, how are you doing? Oh, really, how are you doing? How'd your week go? Any challenges you face? Anything going on? Has the Lord blessed in any way? It's asking a question or two and really listening to perceive. And boy, oh wow, God did that for you? And that's exciting. I know there's a couple people in our church that lost AC this week. 
And God worked to help them get it back together. You know what I say for them? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, here's something funny. I was praying for somebody in the church who lost their AC. My AC went out. They text me, got it working. Isn't that the flash? Oh, you okay, man? Uh, amen. Praise the Lord. That's exciting. Lord, what about me? No, I, you feel like texting that, don't you? Yeah, you know, just no. I'm going to rejoice, and that's a, that's a character. I say no, no, no. I'm going to th- I'm going to do right. I'm going to obey here, and praise the Lord. He answered later on. I have no idea what I did, but it started working. Amen. And uh, that's a good fix-it job right there. You know, it's all the Lord's glory. And hey, can I tell you, that's the kind of thing we're talking about now. Now, think about it. If, if we would just look, we would perceive the needs. Many of you have told me stories like this, as I have experienced too. Have you ever just prayed, God, show me a need? Put someone on my heart to pray for, to reach out to? And boy, I am always amazed that when we do things like that, God puts somebody on our heart, we make a phone call, we send a text message, an email, we, we stop by, we see them, and they're like, oh, I'm so thankful God sent you, I needed this right now. It's amazing how God helps our perception. I put it this way. Make it a matter of prayer. You say, well, Pastor, I just, I, I don't know someone's need. I don't know when they're rejoicing or when they're weeping. a matter of prayer and then add legs to your prayer. Just ask people how they're doing. Is there something I can pray with you about, a concern, a hurt, a sorrow? Is there something I can rejoice with you about? May I just tell you, that's really the intent of our praise time. It's not for someone to brag what God's doing for them for, so the rest of us can be jealous. No, hey, it's rejoice with those who rejoice. Glorify and praise God with me because it's all of him. And boy, he is the one that answered miraculously to prayers. Hallelujah. That's the intent. So make it a matter of prayer. Ask God to open your eyes, give you perception. And I, I, boy, I, I know several of you shared, and I, there have been times in my life, Erica, that we have just, I've been so burdened to reach out to somebody. You reach out to them, and boy, they're like, well, you don't know how much that meant. You don't know what was going on in my life. You're like, I don't, but God does, amen. And boy, he just laid it on. Just pray and ask God for that. But I'm afraid sometimes I'm too busy. I'll stop and ask God, who can I reach out to? Who can I speak to? Who can I try to encourage today? Who needs uh, just a friend? Who needs a fellow believer to come alongside and to share some feelings, to share some emotions, to, to weep with them or rejoice with them? Make it a matter. It can be used of God to be an encouragement and a friend. Emphasis is also not just about perception, but understanding. I think this is so crucial when we talk about rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. It's the idea of seeking to understand the feelings of others. And all that goes into that, and in fact, it's a little bit beyond just understanding feelings, but it's seeking to understand the situation and the feelings. First of all, now, let's look at it from a doctrinal standpoint. I think this is, this is needed and helpful at times, okay? So, f- first, um, we need to settle in our hearts and remind ourselves of this biblical truth. There's a big difference between, quote-unquote, luck and God's blessings. There is a big difference between bad luck and God's plans. What do I mean by that? Well, let me, let's just play on the illustration here. Let's say, well, Pastor, Brother Ernie, he, he brings his truck in, and we're like, wow, Brother Ernie, that's, that's beautiful. How did you get it? How did you come to win this? He says, you know what? They just uh, put all the names. In fact, I think your name was in there. and they, they just put it into a big box, and they just drew out one name. And it was just like that, that they just picked my name. and didn't do anything to earn it or, or whatever the case may be. They just picked my name, drew it out of a hat. 
world? What would the world have? Luck. Fate just gave him a good hand. I mean, that's how the world would say. That's how the world would describe it. That's why the world plays the lottery. That's what they want. Right? Find me one day, then everything would be fine. You know, then what does the world say? Well, why does Ernie get all the luck? I never win anything. You ever say that to yourself? Why does he get all the luck? Why do they always win everything? It all sounds. But may I just say to you tonight? That use, that application of the word quote unquote luck, okay, there ain't no such thing to that usage, just like there ain't no such thing as the word ain't. Okay, there isn't. You can't say, well, I just hope my luck is good. Listen, friend, we have too much knowledge of the God of the Bible to trust any human concoction known as luck. Okay, this isn't up to luck. What is that truck in, in, in Brother Ernie's garage? That's the blessings of God. Every good gift comes from God. You say, oh, Pastor Henry, they, they just drew his name out of hand. Oh, I get that. God may have ordained it happen that way. Listen, I serve a great enough God that they, he could have put that little piece of paper in that person's hand if he wanted to. He could have. If God's will, he wanted to provide a truck for Brother Ernie, praise the Lord, God could do that. But in his sovereignty, do you realize that, that God could also have simply allowed it to happen, and yet it completely reaffirms God is in control? So whether God ordained it, and God said, okay, this is how it's, God said, you know, I'm going to allow that to happen, and I'm going to allow it to, to, to play out. He gets a new trust. What trust to believe that it's God's plan for him. They didn't draw my name, so it's not God's plan for me, and I can trust God's wisdom and knowledge that he knows what's best for me and knows what's best for me. So it, it is very theological. It is very much the character coming out and saying, wait a minute, if I needed that and God said I should have it, ain't nothing keeping me away from getting a truck. Or whatever the need is. Now, if it doesn't happen, then I can also trust God. Okay, God, you must have some other means or plans to, to meet the need, or it may not be a real need. You may be growing my dependence, whatever the case may be. It is not luck. It is simply the blessings of a wise and sovereign God. So it's a hard adjustment. Adding the right under, uh, understanding of my character of situations and how things work out and how they play. See, to be jealous and envious is, note it, to be an issue with God and his sovereignty. See, if you went into that two and three class and you handed one sucker, one lollipop to one child, everybody else is going to give you a sour look. They're going to look at you, where's mine? Do you realize that's how sometimes we do it together? Church, we hear a praise service and someone praises the Lord for doing something and working something out. And sometimes that envy and that jealousy, God, what, what, what about mine? I've been praying for two months now. and that has, but All of a sudden, we can look at God and say, where's mine? Well, that's not fair. I've been in church for every service. I've been reading my Bible. I've been doing this. And all of a sudden, we, we forget a basic biblical doctrine of, hey, my God is sovereign. He is omnipotent. My God knows what's best for me. 
I'll trust in that. I'll lean on that. And I, if he gets a truck, praise the Lord. Boy, am I happy for Ernie. Maybe he'll give me a ride. I'm just rejoicing. This is great. This is wonderful. Praise the Lord. Same thing is true. You say, well, man, that person just had to run a bad luck. No. God may have allowed some tests, some trials, some things to happen, but my God's grace is sufficient for them. And this, he, he's allowed it, or he ordained it. Plan, and he's going to work everything out for that person's good in God's glory. That's his promise. So I'm going to trust in that. You know, can I tell you? Now, the second part of understanding, okay? Have you ever seen a child cry or uh, maybe even throw a fit or sorrow over like a toy or something else that wasn't of much value? Ever seen a child maybe playing? I know growing up, we used to play guns with sticks. You ever do that? Run around with a stick. Oh, it's my gun. You ever seen a kid like break a stick they were playing with and they cry over a stick and you're like, there's a whole forest. What, why are you crying over that? Not, look at that. that. That was a McDonald's Happy Meal toy. Why are you crying over that? It's better, we're better off without it, you know? <laughs> they're crying over it. They're throwing a fit. Oh, you know what this idea of understanding is? Um, well, it, it's understanding that what is a big deal to them ought to be a big deal to me. As a fellow believer. Now there's sometimes that somebody's putting all their eggs in a basket and yeah, their heart, they value that. And I, I get it. There's some spiritual implications. But you know what this passage is speaking of is that when a fellow believer is hurting, if it's a big deal to them, it's a big deal to me. I weep with those that weep. Now that, that describes an understanding of their situation that is sometimes even beyond me. It's an encouragement that if I want to be the kind of friend and Christian that God wants me to be and the kind of fellow believer, then I need to try to understand their blessing that is causing rejoicing or their sorrow that has caused them to weep. The old adage is appropriate. Put yourself in their shoes. Open your heart to what they feel. Take on their perspective. May I say again, not only pray for perception, but pray for understanding. Make it a matter of prayer. Ask God for understanding to see how it is making them feel and to feel like they feel. Now, God, just step back for a second. And I say this. That would help a lot of marriages. Not just church, the family of God, but a lot of physical family. Husband, you don't quite understand why your wife got all, all upset about something instead of just tossing her or, or, or tossing the whole subject matter to the side or just dismissing her for overreacting. Why don't you pray about it? Why don't you stop and ask God, God, help me. I, I don't understand what, why, she, why this has made her weep and cry. I, I'm not quite understanding. And, and don't, just don't mark it off to emotions and all that good junk. Literally, try to put yourself in her shoes. And vice versa. Ladies, something's upsetting your husband, and maybe he goes into a shell, and he's gotten grumpy, and you know something's there, and he won't open up about it. And Pray. Pray and ask God. Some of you are looking at me like, man, I may be hitting close to home with some of these expressions. Hey, pray about it. Ask God. He's there to help us. If he's going to help us be the church we ought to be, don't you think he's going to help us be the husband and wife we ought to be? If these are good for church, these are good for home. So ask God, hey, God, I don't quite understand it. And, and boy, it, sometimes we have to ask that for our children. Man, my daughter turned 16 today, and I don't understand teenage girls sometimes. You know, prayer can help you with that. 
I'm not just making a joke. I'm being serious. Prayer can help us understand our own what it's like to go through something. Because some of us are many, many moons removed. Pray. Make it a matter of prayer in this area too. Why? Why, Why should we do Don't you think he's going to help you understand? He's, he's going to help you get a sense for what they're feeling? Surely you will. You see, the same promise holds true here too. If any of you lack wisdom, understanding. So th- that's a great general promise that can be applied certainly to this too. Take God up on it. Ask for help so that you and I can be more Christ-like in this way. Number three, okay? So not only keep our eyes and our hearts sensitive, uh, understand, seek to understand, but also we must share in the feelings of others. <laughs> share in the feelings of others. Woo! Not real touchy-feely, some of us, huh? It's a tall order for many of us. You know what it requires? Now, don't miss this, okay, guys? Don't, don't just write me off. It literally requires us to open up ourselves, to allow ourselves to be vulnerable, to open our hearts up, to experience and share those feelings that the other Christian, the other believer has in that moment. And, and, and so it, it is literally some vulnerability on my part. I got to share in their feelings. I mean, literally. I mean, there's many men. I, no one's going to ever see me cry. Isn't it amazing the Bible says weep with those that weep? It's all about emotional needs of fellow believers and coming alongside and encouraging and helping them and sharing in those same feelings, rejoicing and weeping. I get it's a tall order, but that's what God calls you and I to. And and I think of Jesus Christ himself often touched in his heart. In fact, we would describe it another way. And it's these two character traits that come to play in this, in this situation and in the, the character traits that are needed to do these things. You see them before you. I've given you one. The other one is this, compassion. And we see about God. What was he moved with compassion? Many times Christ was moved with compassion. And the, the second one there. Okay, so very first off, let's understand what compassion is. The actual word, especially the Greek, but the very idea of biblical passion incorporates the idea of suffering with someone. Literally, the Greek word has this idea and puts forth this idea that I am suffering with someone. I love that because it's literally putting myself in their shoes, sensing the very feelings that they're going through. We see it throughout Scripture as a description of God. God is described many times over as a compassionate God, now get it, who is touched by our infirmities. Literally, he's moved by what we feel. God is moved by our feelings. And I'll tell you, uh, man, that, that ought to encourage us. Do you realize that if you were sad today, that touched God's heart? He is touched by your infirmity. If you were discouraged, God isn't just dismissing you. He is touched by that. He has compassion. In fact, Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 22 says it well. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his what? Compassions fail not. Boy, he sympathizes. He empathizes with us. Everything we go through. And my, my goodness, friend, I, I, I'm not very good at it. But I sure am thankful I have a God that's great at it. He, he empathizes, he sympathizes, he 
suffers with us in a sense. He, he understands our feelings and what we're going through. Uh, we are called to develop the character trait of having and passion likewise. Act of condescending to others. Look at verse 16 real quick ahead. You'll notice in the middle it says, My not high things, but condescend to men of low estate. Condescend to men of low estate. Now, this is an interesting statement, an interesting word, right? And uh, sadly, the word condescend nowadays has such a negative connotation. Everybody defines it negatively. And don't condescend to me. Don't take that condescending tone with me. Okay? You ever hear that? And uh, don't raise your hand if you heard it from your mother or your father or anything like that or someone else, right? Kind of, don't take that kind of, That's really more so than, than not how it is. I describe it as having gotten a bad rap. We define it this way. You can find this all over. This is the definition now that is most associated with the word condescend or condescending. It's to show feelings of superiority or to patronize. Okay? So that is how most often nowadays current... It is defined, especially when the 1611 version was, and and those that followed were translated, condescend, that was not the primary definition. In fact, I couldn't even find a definition like this in Webster's 1828 dictionary, which we typically use to understand some of the words of the Old English. So it wasn't even there. What, what, What was there is this definition. This is what it meant in that day, and what Paul certainly was alluding to. It means to stoop or descend. To yield, to submit. And when you look at the Greek word that Paul used here, it has this meaning. I love this. It means to be carried away. Carried away. It was used in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 13. Remember in Barnabas, uh, Paul was writing Church of Galatians. He said, listen, Barnabas was carried away with the dissimulation of the Jews. Those Jews, he was carried away. I mean, that that was the exact same word used here as condescend. Here it's used in a positive sense in the sense that, hey, condescend to those of low estate. You see what it's saying? Be carried away, literally stoop down to someone's level or go to their level. Let me just put it in common vernacular or common terminology that I think is a good definition we can derive from that. It's literally putting yourself on someone else's level. The idea of being carried away with their act. Coming down to them, condescend to them in a positive manner and in someone else's place. And literally to be carried away means this, all in. That that I'm in it with my feelings, I'm in it with my understanding, my perception, I am all in. When I rejoice with them, I I really am. I'm there in my heart, my feelings, everything is invested and incorporated in my brother or my sister. It is the idea that when they're weeping, the same thought that I am all in. And I might just tell you that's the key to this passage, this verse. In order to obey the command, we have to be both compassionate and condescending, putting ourselves and our emotions on their level and in their place. You know what it will do then? It will make you and I more effective as uh, encouragers, comforters, and fellow believers, Christians, Paul says. And I love it how Paul applies it. Paul says, listen, this is a truth that can be used and applied in different ways. Keep your spot here. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is a fantastic passage that I think Paul really explains and demonstrates how he did this and how he applied it in another situation, not just in the church, but um, in another situation we'll read of. 1 Corinthians chapter number 9. I believe the reference is there on your outline. Look down with me at verse number 19. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. Here is he applying compassion and 
condescension. Notice at verse 19. For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. Verse 20. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law of Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partakers thereof with you. I love this passage, and I love its correlation to what we're learning in Romans chapter 12. There, there's some quacks out there that like to take that passage. Well, listen, I've got to be a drunk to win the drunk. Be all things to all men. Totally incorrect biblically. See, Paul is speaking of what he's saying in Romans chapter To see souls saved and people come to Jesus Christ. I condescend. I show compassion. Literally having their heart for them. Jews, the one with the law, the without the law, the weak. I'm all things to all men in my compassion and condescending to them. Boy, if Paul can do it for the sake of the gospel, can we not do it for the betterment of the family of God? For the uplifting of hearts and spirits of one another, for the health of the church? It's really what we're called to do. That's what Paul's saying here in empathizing and sympathizing. He goes on quickly and just have a couple minutes, but I don't have a whole lot to say. Look at verse 16. Notice it, if you will, with me. He says this back in Romans chapter 12. He adds three statements to it. Be of the same mind one toward another, period. Mind not high things, but condescend to men of low estate period, then be not wise in your own conceits. If we, if we could just kind of package it all together, we'll see it number uh, four here. It says this, avoid partiality, okay? So don't be partial, avoid partiality, associate with all, with everyone. Don't be picky choosy. And then number three, accentuate your life with humility, accentuate your life. May, let, may that be the hallmark characteristic, humility in your interactions. Can I just put it this way? Again, we won't dive into it or, or delve into it too much. It's a simple verse demanding dutiful application. Very simply stated, we are to treat fellow believers the same, have that same mind to all. It's not an accident that it comes on the heels of verses 13 through 15. So show hospitality, distribute to the saints, but don't show partiality in it. Don't be hospitable to some believers, but not others. Be of the same mind, one to all. And boy, James deals with this, right? The guy who comes in with the gold and everything. Oh yeah, have the front seat. You come right up here. And then we shove the person who looks like a beggar or something off the road to the back. He dealt with this idea of partiality. We're supposed to bless all. We're supposed to rejoice with all Christians who rejoice, weep with all Christians who weep, regardless of who they are. There cannot be any partiality in my conduct, my application of compassion and condescendence. There cannot be any picking and choosing. Second part in the middle part of the verse assumes that we already know how to condescend to those of high state. In other words, we can kind of cater to them. We can kind of connect with them. We can kind of get on the same level as them. But it commands us to treat those of low estate in the same manner. To associate with all. Can I just put it this way? 
the richest person here at FBC and the poorest person here at FBC should get the same treatment from you and I. That's what he's saying. That's, that, hey, there are not to be, <laughs> same mind, right? Condescend to the man of low estate as you do the man of high estate. You see, likewise, the one here at FBC with the highest position in the world and the one with the lowest position should receive the same treatment from you and me. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17, other verses along with it remind us that our God is an impartial God. He is not a respecter of persons. And we are called to be like him. May I just paint a little picture? The church is to be one big happy family where we love each other. We treat each other with the same love and compassion, the kind of Christ-like conduct that will only stick with each of us as we suppress our pride and maintain a humble attitude. This thing we call church, may I tell you, that church works best when our attitudes and our actions are clothed in humility. If you want to summarize verse number 16, it's literally humility. Be humble. In all your interactions, in all your dealings, don't show partiality. Don't associate with some, but not everyone. Uh, don't have this attitude of pride. What, the fact is this, pride is the thing that brings, how does the Scriptures put it? Contention, destruction, division. And we could add a whole lot to it. Pride. A character flaw, we might call it, Right? Because pride is. That's the old nature. And boy, we give root to that and envy and jealousy. And all of a sudden, we're going to make a mess of church. We're going to make a mess of home and our family and our friends and so forth. Can I just put it this way? Let me leave you with two thoughts here as we draw this message to a close. And may I say, as we make application personally, let me ask you this. What kind of church do you want? What kind of church do you want? What kind of assembly do you want? Do you want a church full of people who share in one another's feelings where compassion flows freely, burdens and praises are carried and celebrated by all? Or do you want a church in which uh, most only care about their own lives with little care for or sharing in the lives of others, little compassion shown and demonstrated one to another? You say, oh, Pastor Henry, we, we, we want the first church. We want to, man, we want to, we weep with those weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Well, let me ask you this. What are you going to add to it? What will you add to the family? When you come to church and you interact with fellow believers, and uh, will you add humility, a caring heart, compassion, condescension to brothers and sisters of all levels and everyone at church? Or will you add some pride in there, partiality, a haughty spirit that has little room for anyone else? Here's what I know. You get to decide, I get to decide what character we have. It gets to decide what conduct is then produced by that character. What will you add? May I just encourage you? Choose wisely. It affects us all. It affects the church. And certainly affects Jesus Christ, who the church is his bride. Brother Cliff, you bring this prayer request. Let me ask you to continue to pray.